Hello and welcome to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. I'm Steve Smith, your host, and I've got a couple of things I think you're going to like on this one. Welcome to episode number 20. Going to get straight into it, ladies and gentlemen, for episode number 20. As you may or may not know, if you've been following me on social media, you'll know that earlier in the month of June... Oh, earlier in the month of June, what am I talking about? It was towards the end of June uh, before Sydney's lockdown. I attended the Australian Sports Turf Managers Association or the ASTMA as it were, their annual conference at the Gold Coast. What a fantastic event that was and a lot of hard work went into organising the event around various different state lockdowns, least of which are mentioned to CEO of the ASTMA, Mark Unwin, and the team with him that helped put it all together. And some of the personnel, including Mark, were quarantine, had to quarantine to make sure the event went ahead for two weeks. They did a two-week quarantine in Queensland, coming from Melbourne, and uh, it was a fantastic event. Um, a few hundred people from the industry were up there, businesses that support the industry, people, superintendents, greenkeepers and the like from the industry. It was sensational and very well done to the ASTMA. Look, I just want to give you guys a bit of an update about the superstars of sports turf management that are some of the superintendents out there that uh, have won some industry awards. And I'll start off with an award for excellence in golf course management. And that award went to Superintendent Craig Malloy of Cypress Lakes up in the Hunter Valley. I'm a huge fan of Cypress Lakes. If you do or do not know, you know now. Um, and look, Craig's been there for about seven years and has done a great deal of work bringing Cypress Lakes back to life. And it was recognized last month at the uh, 2021 awards and uh, to Craig and his team, con big congratulations. And look, if, you, if you've if you not been to Cyprus for quite some time, you probably don't know what you're missing out on anymore. Uh, Cyprus has been through a period in its past where it wasn't quite up to the standard that we all you know, used to love and remember from the early 2000s. Uh, but now under Craig's direction as superintendent, the team that he has there, um, with him to, to bring out what he has done with the golf course. Oaks is the, the managers of the property, the owners of the property, Cypress Lakes. Look, um, Craig's been able to do a wonderful job with his team. Uh, a lot of bunker restoration and reconstruction. They're bringing in some organic gardening programs to, to the golf course itself. So there's a lot been going on. Uh, trying to drought-proof it in certain different ways of water management and the like. So, look, a big a big deal and uh, certainly put Cypress Lakes on the map and, uh, and all the efforts that Craig and his team have been doing at Cypress Lakes. So that's a mention to uh, Craig Malloy and Cypress Lakes and also probably one of the most revered awards in the greenkeeping industry I'm going to mention. It's, it's one that everyone in the greenkeeping industry probably holds the highest regard for, and that's the Claude Crockford Environment and Sustainability Award. That That's a an award that's bestowed to a superintendent who is able to maintain a golf course within its environment in the most sustainable way possible, looking after all facets of the environment. We're talking flora, fauna, water, soils, the whole kit and caboodle, and with the name of Claude Crockford at the top of it, 
you can probably understand where we're, where the industry is coming from. You know, being the uh, superintendent of Royal Melbourne for I think forty years, that's that's the level. It's it's one of our awards that's held in the highest esteem, no doubt about it. And this year was awarded to Superintendent Nathan Bradbury at East Lake Golf Club in Sydney. Now East Lake is, as you probably know, is in the eastern suburbs. It's a neighbour of the lakes and the Australian and so on and around that Sandbelt area, Bonnie Doon, that area. And uh, look, Nathan has been there for for over a decade now. Has done an incredible amount of work changing the way the golf course is maintained in that environment and it's such a sensitive unique environment it's it's akin to the the likes of the sandbelt in melbourne it's certainly our version in sydney and nathan has built a team around him had a vision and has managed to execute that over a number of years to the point now where east lake is maintained in such a, a magnificent way and a rewarding way for the local area there's water table there's there's water bodies around there's there's lots of you know there's remnant lots of distinct remnant local vegetation in that area that's being harbored and and having to maintain a golf course within that environment and putting in these environmental practices and and management plans and and policies that nathan's been able to do has obviously made waves throughout our industry and clearly uh, nathan was very deserving of this award and and if you're a member at east lake golf club you probably know what's been going on what's been going on what nathan and his team have been up to what the club have been up to overall and as nathan says it in plenty uh, plenty of comments that he's made since receiving the award it's not he he takes it as an award for the club and for his team and that he's the head of and and look without nathan's vision and without his direction without the mind that he's had behind it and the goals that he wanted to kick everyone else wouldn't have been able to do it as well so look nathan's a very humble man and he's taken that in his stride but a big congratulations to nathan his team and east lake golf club for being awarded such an incredible award and like i said one of the highest uh, regarded awards in our industry so that's a big a big effort and and these sorts of things and the reason i'm telling you guys in the podcast is because you guys need to know who the superstars are of sports turf in golf yeah yeah Look, I think it's a big deal, and we don't promote it enough. These are the things that need to be talked about. And if you go to Eastlake and if you you know, peel back the layers and, and understand what they're doing and look at what's being done, you'll see the effort that they're going to to do these things and what the results are, the, minimal, the most minimalist impacts and, and working and living in harmony with the local environment. That's what is going on there and that's what nathan's been able to do in eastlake and to be honest it happens at a lot of other courses as well they're all working towards it but nathan has done such a great job and it's come obviously such a long way and now it's been recognized within the industry across australia so congratulations again it's a big tick and well done to those guys for winning those awards and another award i wanted to mention congratulations to thomas lyon from ballarat golf club in victoria who took out the award as the winner of the ASTMA Australian Graduate of the Year. A big award for a, a young person to win doing their apprenticeship. And Ballarat, over the years, has been a great breeding ground for um, up-and-coming greenkeepers. So don't know what's in the water down there in regional Victoria, but um, certainly Ballarat has been doing a great job. And uh, congratulations to Thomas 
for winning that award and, and taking that one out. And, and just to mention a few of the others, the finalists, because there's one representative from each state. And so we had a couple of others, including Kurt Peters from Newcastle Golf Club in New South Wales, Adam DeEvelins from Wanneroo Golf Club in WA, Jordan Sherritt from Thaxed Park in, Park in South Australia, James Coral from Federal Golf Club in ACT, Thomas North from Royal Hobart and Tassie, and Ryan Murphy from Lakelands in Queensland. So look, lots of young up-and-coming green keepers that no doubt will hold hopefully some key positions in Australian golf clubs, and they may even venture to other parts of the world, and you hear about them in different areas doing great work on golf courses. But like I said, at Ballarat Golf Club, Superintendent Jeff Powell, he's had a few big names up-and-coming names come out from underneath him there at Ballarat. So congratulations to Thomas Lyon from Ballarat um, being the ASTMA's graduate of the year. And that's just a little wrap of some of the um, awards being won at the conference, which I think are important to note. Good to hear about new upcoming names and certainly some key uh, golf courses that are, are moving forward in a positive manner in the industry that should be recognized and noted and look it was great to see I, I caught up with a lot of people in the industry a lot of people i've met over the years met with some new people as well uh, really good to see difficult that a lot of the victorian uh, superintendents and representatives from from golf courses and the like weren't able to come because of their lockdown uh, so that did make it hard we saw some really good seminars and conf- uh, seminars as part of the conference which was which was really good plenty of new machinery um, things that are looking at cutting-edge stuff, pardon the pun, um, of new types of machinery that's out there and all different facets of uh, maintenance and that sort of thing, whether it be renovations, mowing, whatever. Um, some good gear happening out and about. It's coming in through some of the companies. And uh, like I said, some of the seminars, I saw one on Teven Valley, for example, um, the, the nine-hole golf course up there near Ballina in northern New South Wales. There was a talk done by, we had a zoom in from... Richard Forsyth from Royal Melbourne ch- talking to us about the lead up to the President's Cup. So look, we, we got to see and hear about a lot of stuff that's been happening around the industry, which is fantastic. And and look, these conferences are a great way. And, and next year is in Melbourne. So we're hoping that next year is a, a year that makes it easier for everyone to travel. And uh, I think it'll be a fantastic time in Melbourne. So there you go. Thanks to everyone that was involved in the conference. And I had a great time. So thank you to the ASTMA. And uh, yeah, it was a wonderful time. Moving on to Aussie golf history. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a segment of the Golf and Greenkeeper podcast that I'm a huge fan of. I've only done one in the past, and it's something that I really want to bring more out in the future. It's called Aussie golf history, and today's episode or today's segment of Aussie golf history is on a bloke by the name of Ernest Banks. Alfred Ernest Dickinson Banks was his name. I'll start off with a little bit of info as a prelude to the segment. Now, I've done a lot of research for this this one, this segment, and I'll reference where I've got my information as much as I can when I'm talking, just so you know um, sort of the facts and, and where they've sort of come from. I want to thank Harley Cruz 
from Cruise Golf. Now, Harley, I just want to thank him for the conversations that we've had about Kamaruka, which I spoke to him about a couple of podcast episodes ago, and also, and, and just information from him and, and the work that he's done in the backgrounds of of um, bringing out some of the history of Kamaruka as they try and work to to possibly, potentially, bringing Kamaruka to life. And also, off the bat, I'll say that there's some information that I wouldn't have been able to find if it wasn't for Adrian Logue's article in the uh, in Golf Australia magazine. Now, Adrian Logue is doing some work on the Good Good Golf podcast. If you haven't listened to that already, um, if you have, you know who I'm talking about. And he had a, an article, he'd written an article in Golf Australia magazine back in April of this year, and it was titled Finding Kamaruka. And it gives a full insight into the Kamaruka story, which in itself is extremely fascinating. And, uh, and, and I urge you, you should go and read that one if you haven't already. But the article is a wonderful article about Kamaruka and the story behind it, the, the nine-hole golf course that it is. And uh, Adrian was down there sort of looking at the property and the lay of the land with Harley. And um, the article is about the history of the place. Now, Ernest Banks was a professional golfer from England. Specifically, he was a professional at a club by the name of Dover Golf Club in the county of Kent in England. For around 11 years, from what I can find out, is how long he was a professional there. Now, the golf course at Dover Golf Club was a nine-hole course that these days sadly no longer exists. And to be to be honest, not a great deal is known about Ernest um, and his English heritage predating what I can discover um, of his time being the pro at Dover Golf Club. But I have discovered that apart from being a professional golfer, he was also quite competent at golf course maintenance, as it turns out. Dover Golf Club itself began life in 1890 at a location called North Fall Meadow in Dover, which was just to the northwest of a place called Dover Castle, which in itself is pretty impressive. Now, for those of you like me that don't know much about at all about the UK, Dover Castle is at the southern end of what I've heard of, and I'm sure you have all heard of, are the White Cliffs of Dover. Beautiful tourist destination, wonderful landscape there. And uh, as I was doing all this research, I was finding all this stuff out. But I have heard of the, the White Cliffs of Dover. So that's where we are. That's where we're talking about at the moment. Dover Golf Club moved from that location to a new location to the northeast side of Dover Castle, which opened in the new course on the 21st of November 1904. And this course had glimpses of the sea from various points around it. So they were talking about it being uh, quite a lovely location. And basically, it's really right near the cliffs itself by with this new location. Now, from what I also read about the nine-hole course located here, it, it sort of sounds to have been something quite interesting indeed. And for us in modern Australia, with no significant colonial history, having a golf course next to a castle, I'm sure, would have been quite something special. That's, there's no doubt about that. The bunkers of the new course were apparently natural, and some were partly artificially made. The fortifications around the castle were actually utilised in two instances on the golf course itself. Now, some holes I'll mention, because they'll be of reference to Banks's story a little bit later on. Now, the first hole, and, and this is all the stuff that I'm finding out about the long-lost course of Dover, which I'm going to call it. The first hole appears to have been a short bogey five, where the second shot is played along the angle of a dummy fort that was part of built around the castle, the ditch of which guards the green of the first hole. 
The second hole, the tee shot required the player to hit over the bank and the ditch of the fort, making their way to the second to the second green. The third was a 250-yard uh, hole whose only bunkers are bits were bits, I should say, were bits of rough grass, which effectively were there to catch a topped drive, as they termed it, and stop a running-up approach to the green. The fourth is a clique shot, as they, as they wrote it, into an old chalk pit. So I'm picturing, you know, a bit more of like a, a punch bowl style green, playing down to the green sort of thing, something along those lines. Moving forward to the eighth, the eighth hole is where a tee shot is guarded by rough ground and a ditch, another ditch. These are all part of these lay of the land that they utilised around the castle, now, while a bunker forms the hazard for the second shot on your way to the eighth green. Now, this is just a quick snapshot as to the course that Ernest was working at, and it gives us an idea of the type of golf course design he knew of. Now, I mentioned that Ernest was competent at course maintenance, and it was in October 1908 that a bloke by the name of Tom Varden, Tom Varden, yes, Harry Varden's brother, played at Dover Golf Club in a foursomes event. Now, Tom Varden may have been the lesser known brother. However, he could certainly play golf almost just as good as brother Harry. Tom played in no less than 19 Open Championships between 1892 and 1909, just to give you an idea. And he had nine top 10 finishes, including second to Harriet Prestwick in 1903. He tied third at Hoylake in 07 and fourth at Royal St. George's in 1904. Now, I mentioned you know, Royal St. George's in there, and that was part of his, his highest rankings. That's where, they're incidentally, they're playing the Open Championship just this week, um, which we're, I'm sure we're all looking forward to seeing. So he, referencing timeframes, guys, that's 115 years ago, <laughs> more or less, and uh, we're still playing Royal St. George's, which is really, really interesting, and I'm certainly looking forward to it. Now, after Tom had played at Dover in 1908, it was reported in the Dover Express as follows, and I quote, his opinion of the course does great credit to Banks, the local professional. He pronounced the grass in capital order and the course a sporting one for a nine-hole course. He was very pleased in every way with the manner in which it is kept. Now, that's big words from a well-experienced touring professional, I must say. I must say. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that's quite telling as well when you've got a nine-hole course and you're getting those sorts of comments um, that are pretty good a great advertisement for uh for a local golf course to to have a guy of the caliber of tom saying those sorts of things now between 1909 and 1914 ernest banks played in a number of publicized professional golf events so he could he was clearly throwing his hand at this point in time at the touring professional circuit he was wanting to test himself against the best and wanted to earn a living also making some more money now on the 4th of june in 1909 he was reported in the starting list of a qualifying event for the Open Championship that was being held at Deal the following week. In July 1910, another example, he was reported as competing at a professional event for a prize purse of £240. There's a few bucks thrown around just quietly. In 1911, he was reported in the starting list of the qualifying event for the Open Championship again, this one being held at Royal St. George's. There you go. So they played one that Tom Varden was in that I mentioned, 1911, Royal St. George's pops up again. So look, if you haven't heard of Royal St. George's, this is how long ago they were playing it. And uh, it's still a stalwart of the circuit. 
Now, Banks was reported the following week to have scored quite poorly uh, at the Royal St. George's event. So I'd say that he never qualified for that Open Championship. In September 1912, he was reported in the starting list for a qualifying event for a tournament, which with a prize purse of 400 pounds, 400 pounds in 1912. I've done some rough calculations because I looked at that and I was like, holy hell, that's a lot of cash for back then. Calculations in today's Australian money, it works out to be around $87,000 for a local tournament. That's some pretty good coin. I reckon there was a few people flocking to try and, a few professionals flocking to try and play that one. We move along a little bit. So that just gives you an idea of where Ernest was and the events that he was playing. So he was really getting his name out there and competing. And he was, you know, basically saying that I can play golf. Here I am. I want to I want to show off whether I'm any good and try and earn some more bucks. On the 19th of June, 1914, Ernest would marry his wife, Lily O'Kelly, in London. They would then go away for their honeymoon, which must have been short because on the 9th of November, 1914, we find and discover that Ernest and Lily would arrive in Sydney. Now, let me fill in that blank if we can for you. They arrived in Sydney aboard the SS Ceramic. Now, the Ceramic was a steam ocean liner and was built to do the run between Liverpool and England and Sydney, Australia. The trip that Ernest and Lily were on, incidentally, was the last run for the Ceramic before it was requisitioned for the first Australian Imperial Force as a troop ship for World War One, So they basically caught the last boat out of Liverpool to get to Sydney. And this is where some interesting stuff goes on. And, and as I was rediscovering and, and reading up, you know, I'm young enough to not know about the war, not not apart from, you know, family history and that sort of stuff. So I, uh, I wasn't around. I wasn't that close to it. So I didn't really know the dates off the top of my head. And, and reading this was quite interesting. It was all pretty hasty from when Ernest got married to Lily in June 1914. They had a honeymoon and they left to come to Australia. Well, World War I kicked right off in July 1914, as you probably know the dates. And as it turned out, Ernest was sent to Australia by a bloke named Sir Robert Lucas Tooth, who was an Australian businessman. Now, he was sent here, Banks was sent here to construct a golf course that was to be built at his Kamaruka estate in southern New South Wales. So now you're starting to see where we're joining dots here. There's somewhat of a sidetrack here where Lucas Tooth interjects heavily into Banks's story. Now you see, Ernest was 38 in 1914, and having just got married, I can only assume that he was probably pretty lucky to leave the UK on the cusp of the outbreak of World War I. And maybe there was something in the planning between Banks and Lucas Tooth, or maybe the timing was just pure luck. I'm not sure we'll ever know that one. But regardless of, Ernest turns up in Sydney. Now, I don't know how or when Lucas Tooth found Banks and coaxed him to travel to Australia to build him a golf course. That's a pretty tall order. Can you imagine that conversation? Not that we know of the connection. I can't find any connection. But it's been well documented that... Banks arrived under Lucas Tooth's direction and um, was sent here to do a job. What I do know 
is that going back up the Tooth family tree, the Tooth family was from Cranbrook in Kent. So I guess that means they were somewhat from the local area, albeit in today's time, it's about an hour's drive from Cranbrook to Dover. But the, the, the Tooth family were from that side of Kent. So maybe, maybe, I'm not sure there was a connection. That's how they found each other. That said, Lucas Tooth himself was living at the time in his family home called Holm Lacey near Hereford, which is basically on the other side of England. So look, we've been searching. I've been doing a lot of searching, spoken to Harley. You know, um, Harley's talked a lot to Adrian. They've done their lots of research and, and I can't find the direct connection. But like I said, it's been documented here in Australia that... Lucas Tooth had sent Banks over. So we still really speculate as to how they met. Now that aside, there's also a legend or a myth, as it were, in Australia that the golf course Sir Robert Lucas Tooth wanted to build at Kamaruka was designed by Laurie Octoloni. Now he was a Scotsman, a famous golf professional of St Andrews and of the notable Scottish Octoloni golf family. And Lucas Tooth had possibly, the story goes, the myth goes, had possibly sent Banks out to Australia to build Octoloni's design. Now, there's so far never been any tangible evidence that Octoloni actually designed Kamaruka. That said, I myself can't find anything to disprove the myth either. And to be fair, if anyone could get a name like Octoloni, my guess is a man like Sir Robert Lucas Tooth could have been that man, that man to do so. I suppose, all in all, that legend of Octoloni will remain lurking in the background of the Kamaruka story, but that's where I'll leave that one alone because I can't find anything, but like I said, I can't find anything to say otherwise either. So all we actually know for a fact is that it was documented that Sir Robert Lucas Tooth sent Banks out to Australia to build a nine-hole golf course at Kamaruka. This course was mainly to be for the farmers and their families at Kamaruka, but would also be open to the public as a local attraction. And, and also Banks' job was to establish the game of, Kamaruka, of golf at Kamaruka. Now, Kamaruka is about 20 minutes drive west up the valley from Bega. So we're in southern New South Wales. Down on the coast, you go up the valley, 20 minutes inland or there or thereabouts from Bega, and you come to Kamaruka. Pause. Pause. I've gone a bit quick through lots of locations at the moment and lots of names. So like, I said, like I've said, I hope you can keep up with me as well. And you might be thinking right now, what is Kamaruka? If you haven't heard the story, you haven't read the article, what's Kamaruka? I've never heard of it, you might be saying. And you probably, if you're super fast, you've already opened up your Maps app and you're searching for Kamaruka <laughs> just to see where it is. It is on a map. It's still, it's still there. Well, the best modern-day comparison... I can give you as to what Kamaruka was and why it was such an important place. The best modern day comparison I can give you is a place called Elliston, which is located in the upper Hunter Valley, west of Newcastle, in New South Wales. It's north of Sydney. Yes, the famous large sprawling pastoral cattle and horse property formerly owned by the late media magnate Kerry Packer. That is Elliston. Oh, and there's apparently a pretty good golf course there too, Harley tells me. Apparently not a bad little track up there. So like a modern-day Elliston, Kamaruka was a large pastoral holding. Kamaruka already had plenty of history by the time Sir Robert Lucas Tooth had purchased the property from his uncle 
back in 1864. That's the age we're talking. We're talking back in the 1800s that Kamaruka was there. It was there even before that with the Imlay brothers and so on. There's a rabbit hole you can go down for sure in that one, people. Now, Lucas Tooth wanted to introduce his own ideas, so he's bought the property from his uncle, and he wanted to bring his own ideas into building Kamaruka up. So he modelled the estate on the English style of working pastoral properties that he knew from back in England. And, you know, this is whereby you created a village, a central area for families and the workers of the property, things like a church, general store, school, community hall, post office, gardens, an ornamental lake for recreation. There was, it was, he was building basically a small town that was part of his property. And, and it lent itself to, you know, people feeling a lot better, having a nice community. It wasn't just a place for work. The Kamaruka property was a large cattle farm, among other types of farming, and under Sir Robert would become a large dairy farm also, ultimately being famous for cheese, named Kamaruka cheese, no less. Now, Kamaruka basically kick-started what would eventually become the famous cheese region of New South Wales being that of the Bega Valley. That's this is all from so if you know the Bega Valley, you know Bega Cheese, you know all the cheese places down there. They all stem from what Lucas Tooth had done at Kamaruka, and then that region sort of just boomed from there because it was such a big cheese manufacturing or cheese making region. So Lucas Tooth himself would also become a politician in New South Wales. This is the size of this bloke, right? I'll give you a little bit of his background to give you a feel for why Kamaruka was so big and why he could do what he wanted to. So he became a politician in New South Wales and held the seat of Monero. And after moving to England, so he moved over to England from here, would stand for politics over there as well. Robert Lucas Tooth would also become a partner of the giant Tooth & Co., which was a family business from his father and uncles and so on. So there was a lot of of family lineage in that. Now, being a partner of the Giant Tooth & Co., it had many large-scale business ventures in it, and it had a brewing company named Kent Brewery, which was started by Lucas Tooth's great-uncle in Parramatta, now which is probably Sydney's largest western suburb which some of you may know is producing the likes of KB Lager, which for me, being a younger person, I, for me, I didn't know what KB was a long time ago, but it was made more famous in modern times by a bloke of the name of Red Dragon from the NRL footy show, which you might know of. Now, Tooth & Co. also later bought Reshes, so they owned the Reshes brand and produced a number of other beer labels over the years. So they were a big, 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 beer manufacturing, a big brewery. Tooth & Co. historically was one of Australia's oldest companies and was in business business for nearly 150 years. That's how big this thing was. That's how big this company was. uh, You might call it a conglomerate now. Incidentally, Tooth & Co.'s logo was a white rearing horse which is the symbol for the county of Kent. And you'll probably remember seeing the logo on the beer for any of you people that have drunk the beer. It was a white rearing horse, a symbol for the county of Kent, hence the name Kent Brewery and the logo. It was a throwback to their heritage of Kent. On the beer spectrum, Tooth & Co. also produced people like 
Chuck Hahn, who worked in the Kent Brewery and also the Waverley Reshers Brewery, and would obviously go on to start his own boutique brewing house in, as we now know it, Hahn, Hahn Beer. So, look, that's just some of the stuff that's come out of Tooth & Co., just to give you an idea of their beer side of life, which I'm sure many people know about. So, Sir Robert Lucas Tooth was extremely wealthy and had a huge vision for anything he touched. And they were in all sorts of other different, you know, he was on the, he was on the board of CSR, in mining, and, and there was, they, were on, they had so much going on. So, that's how big they were. Now, back to Ernest Banks. So Ernest was here to build a golf course for Sir Robert at Kamaruka, and in a strange and unusual kind of way, Banks arrived in Sydney and went straight, more or less, to Kamaruka, passing by any sightseeing opportunities from a golf perspective in Australia. This means that, and you've heard me chatting to Harley Cruz about this, like I said, a couple of podcasts above, a couple of podcasts ago, that a unique design style of Kamaruka is the penal school of design or the penal style of, of golf course design and and banks brought that with him from the from the from the uk now remember when i was describing the course at dover golf club where he was working before he left that's that's some of those things in ditches and long grass banks and mounds and now because of that because he skipped everything in australia going to Kamaruka, he he wasn't influenced by any of the other styles that were emerging in Australia at that time, with the likes of people Dan Suda, Carnegie Clark, Jazz Scott, who were who were somewhat for this time in Australian golf, prolifically laying out courses throughout New South Wales, with the likes of some in Sydney, the Blue Mountains, the Southern Highlands, all these more or less banks would have sort of had an opportunity to go to, but he was going straight to work. That's what he was here for. He was here for Kamaruka. So work was first. Ernest, in doing so, was basically transplanting his UK experience straight onto the land in Australia. No local research, no local understanding, just his experience and expertise that Sir Robert had entrusted in him. So Ernest arrives here and gets on with the job of building a course at Kamaruka, like I said. Now there's a bit of fanfare about Banks' arrival. To build this course and it was a big deal to indeed build a course anywhere because it was at great expense to do so now there was an article written in the southern record and advertiser on the 21st of november 1914 that banks had arrived with his wife the week before and was there to build them a golf course at the request of sir robert lucas tooth and establish golf at the estate now, a golf course was more so then than now definitely something very special indeed to have. After all, it wasn't like building, a, say, a cricket oval or a footy field. These were established sports in Australia. They were well-rooted already in Australia. Golf was still very much an emerging sport in Australia, although it was starting to kick off, to kick into gear, sorry, by the 1920s. Banks was reported to have mentioned a rough time frame for having the course completed, and that was in eight months. But he was hesitant to be held to that time frame, as he was uncertain how the grass types would that he wanted to use would thrive in the local soil. Like I said, no research stuff being done here, he just got into it. Now the site had been declared for the golf course, which was to be nine holes, on the banks of the Vicandalo Creek, near the main crossroads at Kamaruka. He was reported as saying, this is Banks, was reported as saying that he considered the natural advantages of the locality admirable 
and anticipates that it will be amongst the best and most up-to-date golfing ground in the state. Now, I'm sure that was as much confidence and salesmanship as anything else, as I don't believe, like I said before, he had time to consider any other golf course examples around. So in terms of comparing it to other places in New South Wales, he never had a chance to see them. So he was just stating that with his confidence, he was going to build the best. That, that was him. Now, as mentioned by Adrian Logue from his article in Finding Kamaruka, the manager of the property had written a report for the week ending the 14th of August, 1915. So we're jumping through here. There's, there's no notes or anything that, that anyone has come across about the golf course during construction. So we jump to 14th of August, 1915, where the manager's report says, golf course finished. And there's some notes about the final detailing work being done in preparation of the course and rolling greens and, and top dressing the greens and so on. Now, in my opinion, I do think that Banks would have been the one behind the design based on the words written in articles and so on without any references to a connection with Octoloni. That's my opinion through my research. That's what I think. I think it was Banks. I don't know that there was any connection otherwise. That's, that's me. And if my calculations are correct, that time frame puts the construction completion to a nine-month build from when banks arrived back in November 1914 to when the manager's notes on the 14th of August 1915 say that the golf course was finished. Now, that's not a bad estimate from a guy that turned up stone cold knowing little about the Australian landscape and environment. I'm telling you, that's, that's damn impressive. A Kamaruka golf course was to also become an attraction of the area, like I'd mentioned earlier, and had been written about in a number of articles in prominent Sydney newspapers. Now, for example, I talked about what was being built at Kamaruka. There was a residential hostel built next to the golf course, which was described by one reporter as a palatial clubhouse. Now, that article was from the, the Sun newspaper of Sydney, dated the 11th of March, 1917, which showed an illustration of the clubhouse, along with a quote stating that it ranks with the best in Australia. And I've got to tell you, the image of this for back then in 1970, it's just spectacular. It's a, a fantastic looking building. And sadly, the building no longer exists. Um, I think it was a fire that happened and the building's gone. Now again, huge wraps of Kamaruka from a golf point of view that's coming out in the Sydney papers. Now, it should be noted that sadly, this is post the opening of the golf course and rave reviews and everything. I'll jump back a little bit. Sadly, on the 19th of February in 1915, so what's that, a few months before Kamaruka was completed, Sir Robert Lucas Tooth passed away at his home in Holm Lacey, back in England, of a brain hemorrhage and never got to see the finished course that Banks had built at Kamaruka for him. Pretty sad, really, when you have someone of that stature in Lucas Tooth and he was doing regular trips every year, backwards and forwards to Australia. He had lots of business interests here. Um, it was one of his homes. It was, yeah, it was basically, he was born in Sydney, moved to uh, back to England, but, but Kamaruka held a very, very special place in his heart. And he never got to see the golf course. Now, that's, that's pretty sad, and I can't imagine that news breaking through the, um, the estate at Kamaruka would have been pretty devastating. But... Nevertheless, they finished the course, Banks finished the course, and it opened to uh, much fanfare. 
Now, a rough guide to the course that Banks built is as follows. And remember, if you were hitting a ball 180 yards off a tee, you were considered long. And I'm talking John Daly long. I'm talking Dustin Johnson long. And look, you know, throw Bryson long if you want to, but, you know, he's not too bad. He, he gets beaten by plenty. These comments were from commentators that reported about the course in a couple of newspaper articles over the following years after the course's completion. And, and also remember that courses were not rated to par but to bogey, right? So I'll describe them. It's more or less bogey what it is, one more than you might think for par in a modern day. So the first hole was around 310 yards. It was a bogey five. And it had a long carry from the tee over the Candelo Creek down to the fairway. The fairway had bunkers left and right, and the green itself was considered to be heavily protected around it by bunkers for the errant player, as they put it. Now, that, my friends, is the loosener. That's the opening hole. That's the one that's meant to ease you into the game, if you like. <laughs> a long carry over a creek, bunkers left and right, bunkers around the green. Sure, Ernest, no worries. Thanks for that. The second hole was a shortish 220-yard bogey four hole. Probably the loosener you really needed at one, to be honest. To be honest. The third hole was a 360-yard bogey five dog leg with a, with a gully running across the line of approach to the undulating green. Now, this is where you start to hear some of the similarities to what I mentioned about in Dover. You know, a gully on approach to the green running at an angle, like the, the ditches and things that were used around the castle at Dover and the Dover golf course. The fourth hole was around 290 yards long, but was uphill all the way and ran through a corridor of trees. The fifth was another longish bogey five at 360 yards and had a long enough carry again off the tee, so much so that it could have been considered fairly stiff to manage by some. Now, there was a steep, a steep slope on the left side of the hole, so if you were to pull it off for tee for a right-handed player, you'd run down the slope, making it difficult to hit the green for two. We moved to the six, which was a downhill 420-yard bogey five with no less than 12 bunkers on the hole. This is 1915, guys. 12 bunkers on a hole. And this wasn't a sand, sandy landscape this wasn't a coastal golf course it wasn't easy to do these are these are manufactured bunkers artificial as they put them back then a lot of work went into this stuff the seventh was a short 110 yard bogey three completely surrounded with bunkers the eighth was a long bending a long bending 460 yard bogey five hole with another long carry from the tee to the fairway long grass guards and bunkers on either side of the fairway, and a green well guarded again by bunkers. This this would have been a challenging golf course at best. And the finishing ninth hole was a 260-yard bogey four with what they termed a green of the basin variety. Now, I'm thinking back to that chalk pit hole that they had uh, on the Dover golf course. There's so something down to a, what we would now term a punch bowl green, basically. So he's he's obviously using the style of golf course design that he 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 knew that he was playing that he was maintaining that he was part of back in dover back in england and competing on that's what he was thinking when he brought it here and that's a lap of what ernest banks built at kamaruka and what we know is his first and as far as we know only design from scratch in australia 
Now, a little footnote to the Kamaruka part of this story and to put timing into perspective. Taronga Zoo in Sydney didn't open until 1916. Kamaruka was already open. Qantas wasn't around. They hadn't even formed until 1920. Kamaruka was built. Commonwealth Golf Club hadn't opened yet for play, and that wasn't until 1921. Kingston Heath didn't open for play until 1925. New South Wales Golf Club in Sydney's eastern suburbs, as we know, didn't open for play until 1928. But Sir Robert Lucas Tooth sent Ernest Banks to his estate in southern New South Wales, somewhere in the middle of nowhere between Sydney and Melbourne, to build a nine-hole golf course because that's what he felt it needed and that's what he wanted to build there for the people. All done before a lot of these other things were happening. So that's how long ago we're talking, putting it into perspective, before some of our most famous courses were, were started, were open for play. They'd already built, banks had already built Kamaruka. Now today, Kamaruka no longer exists, which is again detailed in Adrian Logue's article. Um, the course ceased in around the early 2000s and is now just a grown-over grazed paddock at the Kamaruka property. Sad in a sense. Um, you know, and, and there's a story to it. Like I said, go and read this article, Finding Kamaruka by Adrian. You'll, you'll really enjoy it. If, you, if you're looking to get a bit of an insight into a, a, a bit of Australian golf course history, Kamaruka's a great story. So that first stanza of Ernest Banks' story at Kamaruka is finished, but we're not yet finished with Ernie. No sirree, Bob. After Kamaruka's construction was completed, he and his wife moved to Sydney, where in 1916... It was reported that he was in charge of the club and course of Bonnie Doon Golf Club in Sydney at its previous location in Arncliffe on the banks of the Cook River. Not where Bonnie Doon is today, but its, its location prior to that. Now, my guess with the year missing from the end of Kamaruka being built in 1915 and, and being at Bonnie Doon in 1916 is that he probably stayed for a time growing in and managing the course at Kamaruka before leaving. So whilst the, the manager's notes say that the course was finished construction, I'm going to say, knowing what he was doing at Dover, maintaining the golf course, wraps from Tom Varden, that sort of stuff, I'm going to say that he grew it in. That he didn't just build it and leave, I'm going to say that he grew it in. So I reckon he spent some time there before coming to being posted at Bonnie Doon. That's my guess. Little is known about, this, about his time at Bonnie Doon other than the announcement in a newspaper article that had stated he worked there in that role in 1916. That's when that article was. That's all, that's all I can find, and there's probably good reason. This was right in wartime. Bonnie Doon Golf Club's own history, their own timeline of their history, has a blank period from 1916 to 1919. And that's when it, it points towards banks being at Bonnie Doon. So it's hard to find much other than that newspaper report. But in 1919, there's another newspaper report of a 250-yard extension to the 13th hole at Bonnie Doon that was open for play in January of 1919. And in October 1920, another report mentions that a bloke named Victor James, this is in Bonnie Doon's history, that Victor James was employed by Bonnie Doon as its first golf professional. Now, after reading all this, my thought is, with Banks' experience building Kamaruka 
and being in charge of a club and course at Bonnie Doon, not the professional, because remember, it's wartime, like I said. A club may not have needed a golf, a, a golf professional. They just needed someone to manage the place, maybe. And my guess is that he was behind the works of the 13th hole extension at Bonnie Doon. And also during that time was actually looking after the course like he'd done back in Dover. And what I think, no doubt, was doing at Kamaruka, like I said, after the completion of the course construction there. So I reckon for the three years that we don't, that I can't find any information about banks, we don't hear about anything, Bonnie Doon has a blank in that time period. I reckon that Banks was there looking after the place, not as a professional, but looking after the course and looking after the club. Now, the war was officially over in November 1918, and the 13th extension opened in January 1919. It's only a few months. And it wasn't long before Ernest and wife Lily were again on the move, I suppose still trying to find their place in Australia. On the 2nd of May 1919, in the Arrow newspaper in Sydney, it was reported that Ernest Banks had been appointed secretary and professional of the Wentworth Falls Golf Club. Now, if you've listened to this podcast, you'll know that is my home golf course I grew up on. And that's also where I'd previously done a story about Dan Suter. The first original nine holes was designed by Dan Suter in 1913 and opened for play in 1915. So it's just four years after Wentworth Falls was opened that Banks is employed to manage a joint. Now, from Dover to Kamaruka to Wentworth Falls, he's probably by now wondering how the hell he ended up back in English weather up in the Blue Mountains. I'm, I'm sure he is, because it would be a far cry from, from what you'd think you'd be coming to in Australia. Now, Banks was the second person managing the course and working in the pro shop, as I've found out in the history book of Wentworth Falls. But my research suggests that he was the first actual golf professional employed at the club. Now that he found a home at Wentworth Falls Golf Club and golf tournaments were starting up again, Ernest would get out and try to earn some more money competing in some tournaments again, like he'd done back in Dover. On the 25th of July 1919, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that the Australian Golf Club was holding their and their their Australian medal competition on the 26th, which was a 36-hole handicap event, and it had 16 professionals in the field. The 28th of July was the qualifying round of the Professional Golfing Championship, not to be confused with the Australasian Open or the Australian Open. It was the Professional Golfing Championship, which again Banks was competing in against all other professionals, and I can imagine that the round on the weekend just days earlier was probably a practice round for the event. There was still no Australian Open at this time, and there were grumblings in the media about this professional golfing championship as it was a different format. And, and some of the, the, the golf media didn't like it from, from what I've read. They didn't like the idea at all. They just wanted to, to either have the Australian Open or nothing. nothing. None of this thing in between. Now, the Monday event was played in what was described in the media as hurricane conditions. And Banks had played terribly so. There were some ridiculously high scores in that field that I saw. And uh, Banks was one of them. <laughs> he didn't play well at all. Now, there'd been some reports that Banks was representing Lura at this time. Um, but these were incorrect, as I've worked out, as Charlie Campbell was a resident pro from Lura and Banks was from Wentworth Falls Golf Club. They were just some typos that they got wrong. Um, and Banks was at Wentworth Falls at that time. Now, they competed against each other, Banks and Campbell, on, on plenty of occasions. 
Back to Banks's skills as a keeper of the greens, on the 31st of December 1919, it was reported in the referee paper in Sydney, and I quote, E. Banks has made great improvements during the time he has been retained by the club, that being Wentworth Falls, the most noticeable being the raising of the second and ninth greens. He has got the fairways and greens into first-class condition. Nobody better could have been retained by the club as he has had very big experience in this work. He was specially selected and brought out by Sir Robert Lucas Tooth to lay out the course at Kamaruka. He also had 11 years with the Dover Club in England. End quote. Now, there's more about Banks in the Arrow in Sydney in the 2nd of Jan, 1920. And I quote again, E. Banks, who has had very large experience in the best methods of course architecture and greenkeeping, has been attached to the club for some time, during which he has made very marked improvements. The second green has been built up, which it badly needed. Wentworth Falls Golf Club was clearly a very popular golf course and was well regarded, and they were able to get some big names regularly to play in different events at Wentworth Falls. Now, I, I was researching this story, and like I said, I know Wentworth Falls, I grew up there, and I backwards worked there. And I was fascinated to read some of the names attached not only players, but businesses and business people and all sorts of stuff. It was quite interesting. Now, on the 5th of February 1920, an article was written in the evening newspaper of Sydney stating, an interesting four-ball match has been arranged for Saturday, April 10, between T.E. Howard and E. Banks versus E. Appley and C. Campbell for a trophy. So a side point is that, and we've probably heard of Eric Appley and Tom Howard, now, they were noted as being the two leading amateurs of New South Wales and Banks and Campbell among the leading professionals. So there's a pretty high-profile little match going on. 1920 was a big year for Banks in both playing events and also his greenkeeping and architecture skills being noted, like I mentioned. The 2nd of April 1920 reported that grass tees will be in use. The second green at, at Wentworth Falls has been raised and the sixth green vastly improved. On the 8th of May 1920, Wentworth Falls Falls Professional Stroke Comp was held and invited many pros from all over, especially Sydney. Banks competed, but he didn't win that one. But after the event is an interesting one, and I didn't know they did this sort of stuff back then. After the event, there was a driving competition that took place, and, and, and Banks won that. So even... A hundred years ago, they were having driving comps. <laughs> they might have been hitting it 200 yards to win, but they were having driving comps nonetheless. That shows you how long that level of simple competition has been around, who can hit it the furthest. Then the big one makes a return. The big tournament in Australia. The first Australian Open since the start of World War One was on again and was being or was to be held at the Australian Golf Club at Kensington in Sydney. So the previous one was 1913. That was the last Australian Open at the time. And then they had a gap for World War I, and it was back in 1920. Ernest was listed in the starting field and played in the tournament. He scored terribly, terribly. It's like every time he got to the big stage, he, he did struggle a bit. I, I can only assume by the scores that I've seen and where he sits in the lists. He scored terribly so in the tournament, finishing dead last in the field of professionals. Now remember... There were mostly amateurs competing back then and only a, a good handful, I think there's about 15 or so, um, professionals competing. 
Reports suggested E-Banks had a great deal of bad luck. Uh, no doubt, clearly, because he finished Stone Motherless last. Fast forward four months, and Ernest Banks and Lily are shown on the list of passengers aboard the SS Marinda, bound for Rabaul on the island of New Britain in Papua New Guinea. All of a sudden, I've come across this article and I'm like, what's, what's going on? What happened? I've gone from playing tournaments, being a pro, doing works so of Wentworth Falls, and next thing they're on a boat and they're bound for PNG, for Rabaul. What? And an article was written in the Blue Mountains Echo on the 24th of December 1920, so, and it was just after he'd left, as it turns out. The article is as follows. Mr. and Mrs. Banks of the Wentworth Falls Golf Clubhouse have gone to Rabaul to manage a hotel there. They will be much missed at the clubhouse, where their courteous treatment of everyone gained them, gained them the esteem of the members who wished them every success in their new home. So clearly both Ernest and Lily made an impact at Wentworth Falls, and I dare say anywhere they were living and working they made an impact. They sounded like some pretty good genuine people, but Banks was a hard worker as well by the sounds. So after boarding the SS Marinda on the 23rd of November 1920, that's the last we hear of Ernest Banks in Australian golf. That's it. No more. He's left the country. Come in 1914, left 1920. A six-year whirlwind tour, Kamaruka, Bonnie Doon, Wentworth Falls, competing in the Australian Open, competing in different events. I mean, what a whirlwind. But he left a bit of a mark. Now, the bank story has just a couple of final pieces, however. Upon researching anything to do with golf and Rabaul and PNG, I was coming up totally empty-handed until I come across an article in the Pacific Islands Monthly. Who knew? <laughs> the Pacific Islands Monthly on the 17th of March, 1931. And there was a headline. Don't ask me even why I read the article, but I was, I was just trying to get hold of anything remotely related to golf. Because here I'm thinking, this bloke who's just known golf most of his life has left to become... Uh, to find a new venture, to find new life in PNG. And I was just like, what's, what's going on? The article is as follows, and I summarize it. The 11th of January, and it's the year 1931. The new golf course at Lucanai, 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 let's go with Lucanai, was formally opened. It was laid out around the Lucanai race course and it is largely due to the energy and enthusiasm of e-banks that such excellent results have been obtained now there's a little bit more to the article noting some dignitaries that were there during the opening presentation uh, local grass types that were used it were difficult to grow into the fairways etc but my thinking is that this would have to be our earnest banks that's that's what i'm thinking that lucani is near rabal and they were building a golf course. It's, what's that, 11 years after he left Australia. And incidentally, they went there to look after a hotel, to, to manage and own a hotel, as we find out. But 11 years afterwards, so I come across it, I'm going to say it's the same Ernest Banks who's built a golf course. Interesting. But anyway, he moved to Rabaul. They moved to Rabaul to own and manage a hotel, 
but clearly he still had golf niggling away in the background. Now, Harley, Cruz and I speculate in discussions that Ernest possibly just wasn't able to make a living playing golf. He may have been fed up with the cold weather of the Blue Mountains and possibly finding it hard to manage golf courses in the drier climate of Australia compared to that of his native England. So, look, who knows? Who knows? He and Lily may have been wanting a, a tropical, warm new life, and in Rabal, they'd found that opportunity. I, I, I don't, we don't know, but that's what's happened. That's where they went. 1920 leave, end up at Rabal, and then in 1930, 1931, we find that E. Banks is attached to a, a golf course being built at Lucanai. So anyway, there you go. And again, I, I dare say we may never actually find out the reasons. So there was an itch that Ernest had to scratch once again, and this time it was in Lucanai in Papua New Guinea. The final, the final stanza, the final part, we jump now to December 1942 when everything then changed dramatically, and you might know why. World War II was underway, and the Pacific Islands and countries were right in the middle of it all. I'm far from a person with experience in wartime history, but I'll do my best here, so let's see how we go. Sometime in December 1941, it's reported that most civilian men were forced to stay in Rabaul and defend the port of Rabaul, and women and children were evacuated from the island of New Britain, of which and which PNG, Papua New Guinea, was being defended by Australian troops. The Japanese were about to start a raid on Rabaul to capture it as it was considered a strategic location for their advancements. It was a deep sea port for their Navy ships and had an airfield at Lucanai. On the 4th of January 1942, the Battle of Rabaul began and over a number of weeks, the Japanese would overrun the Allied forces and take control of Rabaul. Seven months later, on the 1st of July 1942, Ernest's name pops up again. This time, he's a POW aboard the Japanese transport ship Montevideo Maru, which was bound for Hainan Island. I'm struggling with some of these. I don't know these locations. I'm trying to pronounce them to the best of my ability. Hainan Island is where it was heading. The ship was 65 miles west of Cape Beaujador, Luzon, which is the very northwest tip of the Philippines, if you know that region. I had to, had to Google map that one had no idea. So unbeknownst to a closing submarine, the USS Sturgeon, this Japanese vessel was transporting Allied POWs. The USS Sturgeon had located the Japanese vessel, and a Japanese vessel at that time was the enemy. They'd fired a spread of four torpedoes. Two torpedo hits are scored on the starboard side, and the ship sank at 3.37am by the stern. All 1,050 POWs, 9 crew and 11 guards died aboard the ship. About 80 crew escaped aboard lifeboats and made their way to a nearby Japanese outpost. I haven't been able to find any information as to what happened to Ernest's wife Lily, but the reports were that women and children were evacuated from Rabaul, but I can't find anything else. And as far as I know, they didn't have any children either. Alfred Ernest Dickinson Banks was 66 years old when he died aboard the Montevideo Maru, 
which was sunk by Allied forces in the South China Sea. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of Ernest Banks, a man who carved a life in golf starting in Dover, England, took an opportunity of a lifetime and possibly a lifeline with his new wife at the onset of World War I to come to Australia on assignment from a very influential personality in this country, being that of Sir Robert Lucas Tooth. Ernest Banks, somewhat under the radar, in my opinion, left a mark on golf history in New South Wales. And for me, it was very interesting that some of his journey shaped the history of my home course at Wentworth Falls Country Club, as it's known today. A golf professional, greenkeeper, club manager, golf course architect, golf course builder, hotel owner and husband. That, ladies and gentlemen, listeners alike, that was Alfred Ernest Dickinson Banks. I hope you enjoyed listening to that story, albeit with somewhat of a sad end to to Ernest's life, and we don't know what happened to Lily. But quite a fascinating story from a land far away in England for us here in Australia, but certainly there's an attachment. An interesting connection with Lucas Tooth, interesting stories in golf courses and construction. I really had... An incredible time researching it all and putting all that together. I hope you enjoyed listening and I hope you, you know, got a bit of fascination out of it. And please dig in, dive into any of those things. Lucas Tooth, Kamaruka, there's plenty of stories there um, that are worthy of, of just a bit of Googling to just see a little bit more about them yourselves. Thanks for listening to Aussie Golf History. That was Ernest Banks. And that, guys and girls, brings us to the end of episode number 20. Thank you for listening. Please like, share, subscribe if you haven't already to my podcast to stay up to date with what's happening in golf courses throughout Australia and the golf greenkeeping and architecture uh, history, the golf greenkeeping and architecture side of Australia. I'll try and keep you up to date. Plenty more to come. I've got a few um, interviews lined up and, and, and we'll go back to normal programming with the next podcast with Walking the Fairways. I'll give you a bit more up-to-date scenario of some of the work that's been going on around the country. Really looking forward to it. Hope to join you all again very, very soon. And in a couple of weeks, episode number 21 will fall in your lap. Thank you again, guys. Please share it around and let everyone know how good it is. You keep it green, you keep it green. You hit them clean and we'll keep them green. That's how it works, not the other way around. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you.